Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. For more than a thousand years, the art of alchemy captivated many noble spirits and was believed in by millions. Its origin is involved in obscurity. Some of its devotees have claimed for it an antiquity coeval with the creation of man himself. Others, again, would trace it no further back than the time of Noah. Vincent de Beauvais argues, indeed, that all the antediluvians must have possessed a knowledge of alchemy, and particularly cites Noah as having been acquainted with the elixir vitae, or he could not have lived to such a prodigious age, and have begotten children when upwards of five hundred. Langlet de Fresnoy, in his History of the Hermetic Philosophy, says, Most of them pretended that Shem, or Chem, the son of Noah, was adept in the art, and thought it highly probable that the words chemistry and alchemy were both derived from his name. Others say the art was derived from the Egyptians, among whom it was founded by Hermes Trismegistus. Moses, who is looked upon as a first-rate alchemist, gained his knowledge in Egypt, but he kept it all to himself and would not instruct the children of Israel in its mysteries. All the writers upon alchemy triumphantly cite the story of the golden calf in the 32nd chapter of Exodus, to prove that this great lawgiver was an adept and could make or unmake gold at his pleasure. It's recorded that Moses was so wroth with the Israelites for their idolatry that he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it into powder and strewed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink it. This, say the alchemists, he could never have done had he not been in possession of the philosopher's stone. By no other means could he have made the powder of gold float upon the water. But we must leave this knotty point for the consideration of the adepts in the art, if any such there be, and come to more modern periods of its history. The Jesuit, Father Martini, and his Historia Sinica, says it was practiced by the Chinese 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, but his assertion, being unsupported, is worth nothing. It would appear, however, that pretenders to the art of making gold and silver existed in Rome in the first centuries after the Christian era, and that when discovered, they were liable to punishment as knaves and impostors. At Constantinople in the 4th century, the transmutation of metals was very generally believed in, and many of the Greek ecclesiastics wrote treatise upon the subject. Their names are preserved in some notice of their works given in the third volume of Langlet de Fresnoy's History of the Hermetic Philosophy. Their notion appears to have been that all metals were composed of two substances, the one, metallic earth, and the other, a red inflammable matter, which they called sulphur. The pure union of these substances formed gold, but other metals were mixed with and contaminated by various foreign ingredients. The object of the philosopher's stone was to dissolve or neutralise all these ingredients, by which iron, 
lead, copper, and all metals would be transmuted into the original gold. Many learned and clever men wasted their time, their health, and their energies in this vain pursuit. But for several centuries, it took no great hold upon the imagination of the people. The history of the delusion appears, in a manner, lost from this time till the 8th century, when it appears amongst the Arabians. From this period, it becomes easier to trace its progress. A master then appeared, who was long looked upon as the father of the science, and whose name is insolubly connected with it. Gerber, of this philosopher, who devoted his life to the study of alchemy, but few particulars are known. He is thought to have lived in the year 730. His true name is Abu Musa Jafar, to which was added Al-Soft, or the Wise, and he was born at Haran, in Mesopotamia. Some have thought he was a Greek, others a Spaniard, and others a Prince of Hindostan. But of all the mistakes which have been made respecting him, the most ludicrous was that made by the French translator of Sprenger's History of Medicine, who thought, from the sound of his name, that he was a German, and rendered it as the donateur or giver. No details of his life are known, but it is asserted that he wrote more than 500 works upon the Philosopher's Stone and the water of life. He was a great enthusiast in his art, and compared the incredulous to little children shut up in a narrow room without windows or aperture, who, because they saw nothing beyond, denied the existence of the great globe itself. He thought that a preparation of gold would cure all maladies, not only in man, but in the inferior animals and plants. He also imagined that all the metals laboured under disease, with the exception of gold, which was the only one in perfect health. He affirmed that the secret of the Philosopher's Stone had been more than once discovered, but the ancient and wise men who had hit upon it would never, by word or writing, communicate it to men, because of their unworthiness and incredulity. His sum of perfection, or instruction to students to aid them in their laborious search for the stone and elixir, has been translated into most of the languages of Europe. An English translation, by a great enthusiast in alchemy, one Richard Russell, was published in London in 1686. The preface is dated eight years previously. From the house of an alchemist, at the Star, in Newmarket, in Wapping, near the dock. His design in undertaking the translation was, as he informs us, to expose the false pretenses of the many ignorant pretenders to the science who abounded in his day. But the life of Gerber, though spent in the pursuit of this vain chimera, was not altogether useless. He stumbled upon discoveries which he did not seek, and science is indebted to him for the first mention of corrosive sublimate. The red oxide of mercury, nitric acid, and the nitrate of silver for more than 200 years after the death of Gerber, the Arabian philosophers devoted themselves to the study of alchemy, joining with it that of astrology. Of these, the most celebrated was Al-Farabi. Al-Farabi flourished at the commencement of the 10th century, 
and enjoyed the reputation of being one of the most learned men of his age. He spent his life in travelling from country to country, that he might gather the opinions of philosophers upon the great secrets of nature. No danger dismayed him, no toil wearied him of the pursuit. Many sovereigns endeavoured to retain him at their courts, but he refused to rest until he had discovered the great object of his life, the art of preserving it for centuries, and of making gold as much as he needed. This wandering mode of life at last proved fatal to him. He had been on a visit to Mecca, not so much for religious or philosophical purposes. When returning through Syria, he stopped at the court of Sultan Sifet Dulet, who was renowned as the patron of learning. He presented himself in his travelling attire, in the presence of that monarch and his courtiers, and, without invitation, coolly sat himself down upon the sofa beside the prince. The courtiers and wise men were indignant, and the sultan, who did not know the intruder, was at first inclined to follow their example. He turned to one of his officers and ordered him to eject the presumptuous stranger from the room. But Al-Farabi, without moving, dared them to lay hands upon him. Turning himself calmly to the prince, remarked that he did not know who was his guest, or he would treat him with honour, not violence. The sultan, instead of being still further incensed, admired his coolness and, requesting him to sit still closer to him on the sofa, entered into a long conversation with him upon science and divine philosophy. All the court were charmed with the stranger. Questions for discussion were propounded, on all of which he showed superior knowledge. He convinced everyone that ventured to dispute with him and spoke so eloquently upon the science of alchemy that he was at once recognised as only second to the great Gerber himself. One of the doctors present inquired whether a man who knew so many sciences was acquainted with music. Al-Farabi made no reply, but merely requested that a lute should be brought to him. The lute was brought, and he played such ravishing and tender melodies that all the court were melted into tears. He then changed his theme and played airs so sprightly that he set the grave philosophers, sultan and all, dancing as fast as their legs could carry them. He then sombered them again by a mournful strain and made them sob and sigh as if broken-hearted. The sultan, highly delighted with his powers, entreated him to stay, offering him every inducement that wealth, power and dignity could supply. But the alchemist resolutely refused. It being decreed, he said, that he should never repose till he had discovered the philosopher's stone. He set out accordingly the same evening, and was murdered by some thieves in the desert of Syria. His biographers give no further particulars of his life beyond mentioning that he wrote several valuable treatises on his art, all of which, however, have been lost. His death happened in the year 954. Avicenna, whose real name was Eb Sinner, another great alchemist, was born at Bukhara in 980. 
His reputation as a physician and a man skilled in all sciences was so great that the Sultan Magdal-Duleth resolved to try his powers in the great science of government. He was accordingly made Grand Vizier of that prince, and ruled the state with some advantage. But in a science still more difficult, he failed completely. He could not rule his own passions, but gave himself up to wine and women, and led a life of shameless debauchery. Amid the multifarious pursuit of business and pleasure, he nevertheless found time to write seven treatises upon the philosopher's stone, which were for many ages looked upon as of great value by pretenders to the art. It is rare that an eminent physician, as Avicenna appears to have been, abandons himself to sensual gratification, but so completely did he become enthralled in the course of a few years that he was diminished from his high office and died shortly afterwards, of premature old age and a complication of maladies brought on by debauchery. His death took place in the year 1036. After this time, few philosophers of any note in Arabia are heard of devoting themselves to the study of alchemy. But it began shortly afterwards to attract greater attention in Europe. Learned men in France, England, Spain and Italy expressed their belief in the science, and many devoted their whole energies to it. In the 12th and 13th centuries especially, it was extensively pursued, and some of the brightest names of that age are connected with it. Among the most eminent of them are Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquina. The first of these philosophers was born in the year 1193. For the first 30 years of his life, he appeared remarkably dull and stupid, and it was feared by everyone that no good could come of him. He entered the Dominican monastery at an early age, but made so little progress in his studies that he was more than once upon the point of abandoning them in despair, but he was endowed with extraordinary perseverance. As he advanced to middle age, his mind expanded, and he learned whatever he applied himself to with extreme facility. So remarkable a change was not in that age to be accounted for but by a miracle. It was asserted and believed that the Holy Virgin took pity upon his incapability and appeared to him in the cloister where he sat, almost despairing, and asked him whether he wished to excel in philosophy or divinity. He chose philosophy to the chagrin of the Virgin, who reproached him in mild and sorrowful accents that he had not made a better choice. She, however, granted his request that he should become the most excellent philosopher of the age, but set this drawback to his pleasure, that he should relapse, when at the height of his fame, into his former incapacity and stupidity. Albertus never took the trouble to contradict the story, but prosecuted his studies with such unremitting zeal that his reputation speedily spread all over Europe. In the year 1244, the celebrated Thomas Aquinas placed himself under his tuition. Many extraordinary stories are told of the master and his pupil. While they paid all due attention to other branches of science, they never neglected the pursuit of the philosopher's stone and the elixir vitae. Although they discovered neither, 
it was believed that Albert had seized some portion of the secret of life and found means to animate a brazen statue, upon the formation of which, under proper conjunctions of the planets, he had been occupied many years of his life. He and Thomas Aquinas completed it together, endowed it with the faculty of speech, and made it perform the functions of a domestic servant. In this capacity, it was exceedingly useful. But, through some defect in the machinery, it chattered much more than was agreeable to either philosopher. Various remedies were tried to cure it of its garrulity, but in vain, and one day, Thomas Aquinas was so enraged at the noise it made, when he was in the midst of a mathematical problem, that he seized a ponderous hammer and smashed it to pieces. He was sorry afterwards for what he had done, and was reproved by his master for giving way to his anger, so unbecoming in a philosopher. They made no attempt to reanimate the statue. Such stories as these show the spirit of the age. Every great man who attempted to study the secrets of nature was thought a magician, and it is not to be wondered at that, when philosophers themselves pretended to discover an elixir of conferring immortality, or a red stone that was to create boundless wealth, that a popular opinion should have enhanced upon their pretensions and have endowed them with powers still more miraculous. It was believed of Albertus Magnus that he could even change the course of seasons, a feat which many thought less difficult than the discovery of the grand elixir. Albertus was desirous of obtaining a piece of ground on which to build a monastery in the neighbourhood of Cologne. The ground belonged to William, Count of Holland and King of the Romans, who, for some reason or other, did not wish to part with it. Albertus is reported to have gained it by the following extraordinary method. He invited the prince, as he was passing through Cologne, to a magnificent entertainment prepared for him and all his court. The prince accepted it and repaired with a lordly retinue to the residence of the sage. It was in the midst of winter, the Rhine was frozen over, and the cold was so bitter that the knights could not sit on horseback without running the risk of losing their toes by frost. Great, therefore, was their surprise on arriving at Albert's house to find that the repast was spread in his garden, in which the snow had drifted to the depth of several feet. The earl in high dungeon remounted his steed, but Albert at last prevailed upon him to take his seat at the table. Had he no sooner done so than the dark clouds rolled away from the sky, a warm sun shone forth, the cold north wind veered suddenly round, and blew a mild breeze from the south. The snows melted away, the ice was unbound upon the streams, and the trees put forth their green leaves and fruit. Flowers sprang up beneath their feet, while larks, nightingales, cuckoos, thrushes, and every sweet-song bird sang hymns from every tree. The earl and his attendants wondered greatly, but they ate their dinner, and in recompense for it, Albert got his piece of ground to build a covenant on. He had not, however, shown them all his power. Immediately that the repast was over, he gave the word, and dark clouds obscured the sun. 
The snow fell in large flakes, the singing birds fell dead, the leaves dropped from the trees, and the wind blew so cold and howled so mournfully that the guests wrapped themselves up in their thick cloaks and retreated into the house to warm themselves at the blazing fire in Albert's kitchen. Thomas Aquinas also could work wonders as well as his master. It is related of him that he lodged in the street at Cologne, where he was much annoyed by the incessant clatter made by the horses' hoops, as they were led through it daily to exercise their grooms. He had entreated the latter to select some other spot where they might not disturb a philosopher, but the grooms turned a deaf ear to all his solicitations. In this emergency, he had recourse to the aid of magic. He constructed a small horse of bronze, upon which he inscribed cabalistic characters, and buried it at night in the midst of the highway. The next morning, a troop of grooms came riding along as usual, but the horses, as they arrived at the spot where the magic horse was buried, reared and plunged violently. Their nostrils distended with terror. Their manes grew, and the perspiration ran down their sides in streams. In vain the riders applied the spur. In vain they coaxed or threatened, but the animals would not pass the spot. On the following day, their success was no better. They were at length compelled to seek another spot for their exercise, and Thomas Aquinas was left in peace. Albertus Magnus was made Bishop of Ratisbon in 1259, but he occupied this see only four years. When he resigned, on the ground that its duties occupied too much of the time, which he was anxious to devote to philosophy, he died in Cologne in 1280, at the advanced age of 87. The Dominican writers deny that he ever sought the philosopher's stone, but his treatise upon minerals sufficiently proves that he did. <laughs>